When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that put the, puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukara, and fellow rioter Alice Burton. We're recording this week's episode on Wednesday, October 24th. Uh, hello, Alice. How are you today? Hi, Kim. I'm a little sleepy. How are you? I am also a little sleepy, but feeling excited. The weather's been pretty decent and uh, almost the weekend. So here we go. And we're so close to Halloween right now. Yes, yes. By the time this episode drops, it will be even closer to Halloween. Uh, But yeah, are you excited about Halloween? I am. So uh, there's a bunch of people that I know having parties this weekend. So my girlfriend was like, we have to dress up. So I am going to be wearing the costume I wore to Chicago's C2E2, which is like Chicago Comic Con, uh, which is Janet from The Good Place. Oh, I saw and- your pictures of that <laughs> on Twitter or Instagram. Oh my God, Alice. It was so adorable. Like, Well, I'm, ex- I'm excited because my girlfriend's going as bad Janet. So yes. <laughs> oh my God. I am yeah. dying. You have to send me a picture. That's going to be so amazing. I absolutely Uh, will. Are you dressing up as anything for Halloween? um, So I think we usually usually dress up at work. So um, one of my coworkers, uh, we work in the same department and we both do communications and we, I guess, look vaguely similar in that we are like petite women with dark hair. Um, And so people often get us mixed up. So we're going to go as each other um, for Halloween. (laughs) So. It's like Dwight and Jim on The Office, except they yeah. were just doing it to be mean, and you guys will be doing it for fun. This is in, in jest and, and a little bit of shade, but mostly in jest. <laughs> uh, yes. So uh, in terms of follow-up, we have, I think, just one piece of follow-up this week, and it came from a listener on Twitter uh, named Emily. And um, she w- tweeted at us about the um, – we talked about Nathaniel Philbrick last week. I mentioned one of his books, his new one, um, In the Hurricane's Eye, in new books, but that I hadn't read any, and we both had not read Nathaniel Philbrick. Uh, and so she said that uh, his book, In the Heart of the Sea, is among her top five favorite books of all time, and that we should put it at the top of the pile. Uh, and so I said, thank you. And then I went and looked it up at the library. And that is one about the um, uh, sinking of the whale ship Essex and what happened after that. And that was kind of an inspiration for uh, Moby Dick. And it's actually, uh, I saw, found it at the library. It's actually not a real long book. Like it's pretty pretty slim for a, a big historical nonfiction book. So uh, anyway, In the Heart of the Sea recommend, by Nathaniel Philbrook, recommended by a listener to come to the top of the TBR. So yeah, I thought that was good follow-up. I appreciated that. Yeah, that was a good wreck. Yeah. Do you have any other follow-up or are we ready to move? I think move we on? can just move right along. 
Excellent. So before we jump in, I just wanted to mention that um, this podcast is dropping on October 30th, which means you have one final day to uh, enter Book Riot's giveaway for um, a subscription to TBR, which is um, our subscription book service. Uh, It's uh, tailored book recommendations, which is kind of like the stitch fix for books. Um, So you can, um, if you want to, uh, we're giving a doing a giveaway for it. So you can check that out. Um, and you can learn more about TBR at mytbr.co. That's great. And our first sponsor for this episode is Bibliophile by Chronicle Books, uh, the ultimate gift for book lovers, which, you know, we're getting really close to the holiday season already. Gosh. Um, Bibliophile brims with literary treasures, all delightfully illustrated by a beloved artist and founder of Ideal Bookshelf, Jane Mount. Readers, readers will tour the world's most beautiful bookstores, test their knowledge of the written word with quizzes. Oh, that sounds fun. Find their great read, next read in lovingly curated stacks of books and sample the most famous fictional meals. Oops, sorry, I just dropped things. Um, <laughs> and peek inside the workspaces. This is a raw podcast. Peek inside the workspaces of their favorite authors and more. A source of endless inspiration. Bibliophile is sure to enchant anyone and all who identify as bookworms. So check out Bibliophile by Chronicle Books. And thank you for sponsoring. Excellent. And that also reminded me, um, it, uh, all of the Book Riot podcasts will be doing holiday gift guide episodes in late November and early December, um, where we're going to recommend some uh, books in our particular genres that would be great holiday gifts. And so our holiday gift guide episode for For Real is going to be on Tuesday, November 27th is when it's going to drop. Uh, so if you are looking for a recommendation for someone in your life or need some ideas, particular ideas for holiday gifts, um, please feel free to get a hold of us on Twitter or you can send me an email uh, and we'll try to incorporate some of that into the show as well. I think that will make it a little more fun and interesting. Uh, I did not run this by you before I started talking, Alice, so sorry. No, that sounds um, but you can <laughs> You can get me on email. Uh, it's just kim at riotnewmedia.com. Uh, so if you have uh, holiday book needs, uh, again, you can email or get us on Twitter. I'm kim at riotnewmedia.com. Uh, and so with that, we will officially finally move into the first segment of this week's podcast, which is always new books, where we talk about uh, upcoming titles that we have read or are excited about uh, and tell us why we why we think they're going to be awesome. So um, my first one is a book that I, uh, it's from earlier in the month and I neglected to mention it in our previous podcast. And I think that was a big bummer because it's awesome and I'm about two thirds of the way through and it is really, really good. So uh, the book is called All You Can Ever Know by Nicole Chung and it came out uh, October 2nd from Catapult. Uh, And this is a memoir by a Korean American woman who was adopted by a white family from rural rural Oregon um, when she was just a baby. Um, So she was born severely prematurely. She had a lot of medical problems as a kid. And so she was put up for adoption by her Korean parents um, and then was adopted by this white family who lived in rural Oregon. And so she writes in the book about how the story of her adoption as it was told to her by her adoptive family and her parents was that... um, she was meant to be with her her adoptive parents and that her biological parents had really sacrificed to give her a better life with this new family um, and that she was sort of meant to be in that space. But uh, growing up Asian in a town where she could count then count on like one hand the number of other Asian people in the community, um, she grew up with a lot of bullying and isolation and um, 
it, it was that was a difficult experience for her, but trying to understand her race in the context of adoption and this adoption story was really complicated. Um, but so when she was pregnant with her first child, she decided she wanted to try and connect with her biological family because um, ostensibly because she wanted to try and get some medical information um, about her you know, potential pregnancy and everything like that. Um, but also because she had wanted to to meet and connect with them. So um, that's the part of the book I'm at right now. She has sort of just reached out to try and start that process and is going to see what happens next. Um, and it's just a, it's an incredibly beautiful book. Um, the writing is really, really lovely. Um, and I, I think one of the themes that's come up in a lot of books that I'm going to talk about this week is the idea of representation and about how important it is to see um, ourselves and our heroes and in pop culture. Um, and she writes about that and her experiences growing up as an Asian kid in a white community. Um, and then the complexities of transracial adoptions and what that has meant for her and it has meant for her, her family. Um, I think it's just really, it was a really interesting, great book. So I'm, it's one of the ones I'm hoping to finish really soon because I'm enjoying it a lot. Um, so that book is All You Can Ever Know by Nicole Chung out October 2nd from Catapult. I am really glad that you mentioned that book. Um, I obviously follow Nicole Chung on Twitter. I say obviously because she is a great bookish Twitter account to follow. Um, and oh, she was, I didn't know that. Cool. Yeah. Well, and she was formerly um, an editor of The Toast, right? I, for- I forget her exact job at The Toast, but um, the oh, I don't know. very sort of um, funny uh, – basically if you're a librarian you you loved the toast was kind of the way that that worked <laughs> but nicole chung worked for them until um they closed what a year or two ago it was it was a little bit ago yeah. but um mm-hmm. i i know that we're not doing fiction nonfiction this section but i will say that i i feel like a great pairing for this would be little fires everywhere by celeste ng mm-hmm. um we actually just read that in my book club last month and when i was reading all the stuff about all you can ever know i was like oh my gosh this is like <laughs> the other side of that story like if things had i'm not going to spoil the book anyway um read little fires everywhere and all you can ever know uh moving on my next pick (laughs) our first pick for this episode is silicon valley san francisco and the long shadow of the valley by carrie mcclelland it was out october 9th so it's out now by um, W.W. Norton. So this is uh, an intimate, eye-opening portrait of San Francisco transformed by the tech boom, which is basically the whole purpose of the book is that San Francisco is changing incredibly quickly. Um, So it's famously, you know, like from the, I'd say, 1950s onwards, home to artists and activists and known as the birthplace of the Beats and the Black Panthers and the LGBTQ movement. But in recent decades, the Bay Area has been reshaped by Silicon Valley. So the engine of the new American economy and the richer the region gets, the more unequal and less diverse it becomes. And cracks in the city's facade, such as rapid gentrification and epidemic of evictions, rising crime, atrophied public institutions have started to show. So Carrie McClelland decided to um, inspired by kind of the work of Studs Terkel, you know, he wrote working and all of these um, classic texts um, about the working class. He decided to go and interview as many people as he could in San Francisco and kind of see, like, run the gamut of um, who these people are and what their experience of the city has been and how uh, what's happening in San Francisco and Silicon Valley affects what's happening in the rest of the country. Um, And so I started it. They're talking at first with this guy who kind of lived in old San Francisco, like before of this, and it kind of moves forward with these interviews and all these people who have occupied all these different niches of of that society. Um, It's really interesting. Um, I feel like a lot of books have been coming out about Silicon Valley to the point that I'm like, I don't normally read about tech, but I'm like, oh gosh, I think that this is 
maybe affecting us like a lot. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like uh, mm-hmm. just all of the stuff happening there. So um, the book also has a really great cover. I'm always a sucker for a great cover. So um, Silicon <laughs> Valley, San Francisco in the Long Shadow of the Valley by Carrie McClelland. Yeah, I think you're right that like books about Silicon Valley and Silicon Valley business and culture are really starting. There's going to be a lot more of them. I just saw one I think that's coming out this month that's about working conditions and how the working practices and stuff in Silicon Valley have trickled out to other companies and how they're really not good for us. Um, So yeah, sort of the outsized impact that that booming area is having on the way the rest of the country operates. Yeah, I think that's definitely a micro trend or something in nonfiction right now. Mm -hmm. I don't really know. Uh, yeah. Um, so my second book is one that I haven't gotten to read or preview really at all. I just, um, I found it in the list of October books that were coming out and I was like, that's right. This one sounded amazing and I almost forgot about it, which would have been a real bummer. So, um, the book is called Let It Bang, A Young Man's, Young Black Man's Reluctant Odyssey into Guns by R.J. Young. And so this is a, a pretty slim, from what I can tell, memoir about a young black man who marries a white woman and then uh, is given the gift of a Glock from his gun-loving father-in-law. And so uh, previous to that, he had been taught to be really afraid of guns because that makes sense when you're a young black man in the United States, which is terrible. Um, And so he kind of in spite of the like rage and fear he experiences among white gun owners who see him with this weapon, he decides that he's going to get really, really, really good at using it. Um, and so this is a memoir about his unexpected obsession um, with gun culture and his kind of foray into it as a person who's not really supposed to be a part of it. Um, apparently, he eventually becomes an NRA certified pistol instructor, which I think is kind of fascinating. Um, and so he just looks at um, uh, reporting on shadow industries like the U.S. Law Shield, which ensures and defends people who report to have shot someone in self-defense. They look at the national, he looks at the National African American Gun Association um, and just kind of gives an insider, outsider perspective on American gun culture, which I think just sounds super fascinating. So I'm going to be looking for that one soon. Uh, that book is called Let It Bang, A Young Man's young Black Man's Reluctant Odyssey into Guns by R.J. Young, which came out October 23rd from HMH. Um, that sounds really, really good. Yeah. And Let It Bang is an awesome title. I feel, it I feel somewhat bad about my next pick now. <laughs> like somehow. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Kim can see what it is. It's fine. Um, so my next pick is In Pursuit, The Hunt for the Beltway Snipers by David Reichenbach. Sorry. It's not funny. A lot of, it was No, it's it's my fault because I had a different book for my second one and then I switched it at the last minute. And so it's, it's fine. It's fine. Um so uh, yeah, again, sorry. In pursuit, the hunt for the beltway snipers. It is out October twenty-sixth from Four Edge. Uh so this is it's a true crime book, obviously. Um, if you're at all familiar with the Beltway Sniper case, um So this book follows the hunt for the Beltway snipers during the 23-day shooting spree that terrorized Maryland, Virginia, and the District of Columbia. Um, David Reichenbach is the criminal intelligence operations commander, which I think is a super cool title, uh, for the Maryland State Police and commanding officer at the scene during the sniper's capture in Myersville, Maryland. He played a major role in the investigation from the first day of the killing spree through its final act. Um, as the snipers were cornered in a rest area in Western Maryland. So um, this is basically 
looking through these questions that all of these law enforcement agencies had, which was like, who were the killers? Was their choice of victims random? Um, and why were they doing this? Um, the killers were leaving notes to taunt the police. And that ended up, you know, helping sort of like they were able to to capture them, thank God. But um, what I was reading of it, so he kind of talks about how in the wake of September 11th, you know, all of these law agencies were suddenly reforming and everyone, of course, especially in kind of Maryland and the DC area were very terrified of what was going to be happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were, he's kind of like, it's interesting because I don't normally read books by law enforcement. Um, And so it's, it's a very different perspective to what I, I normally sort of check out. And he was talking about how, you know, they're expected, especially in like 2002, they're expected to do all of this extra work in terms of intelligence and all the stuff that then they weren't given extra manpower. Like there was all this, you know, it's kind of like everyone spread too thin. And so then mm-hmm. things slipped through. Um, but so he talks about how they first like someone had shot through the window of a Michaels, I think, in Maryland. And they were like, oh, OK, sure. Like, you know, it's a random shooting thing of like a, a store. It's fine. And um, but then that and so they didn't think of anything of it. And then that same day was when the first victim was shot. Um, I think he was putting groceries in the back of his car. Um and then, of course, again, it continued for 23 days. So this is the whole chronicle of that from the perspective of this this um, officer who was there from the beginning. And uh, it's a really interesting story. Uh, it's a very sobering story, but very sort of like page turny. So um, if you're interested in some true crime about this event, it is In Pursuit, The Hunt for the Beltway Snipers by David Reichenbaugh. Yeah, I remember how like what a weird time that was because it was, yeah, not that far off from September 11th. And so everybody was still very, yeah, on edge about all that stuff. And there was no idea, is it terrorism or not? And yeah, interesting. And man, can I believe 2002? Like how long ago no. was that? That's crazy. <laughs> um, yeah. Ooh, I was a teenager is. then. I probably wasn't even paying attention to the news, knowing myself at that time. So this is another reason this is interesting <laughs> to me. Is I'm like, oh, all this was happening. Okay. Yeah. Oh, interesting. All right. So my um, my third pick is called Nine Pints, A Journey Through the Money, Medicine, and Mysteries of Blood by Rose George. And it's out October 23rd from Metropolitan Books. And so this book is an eye-opening exploration of blood, the life-giving substance with the power of taboo, the value of diamonds, and the promise of breakthrough science. Um, And so this is basically just a scientific and a social and a political history of blood um, from like ancient bloodletting practices to um, technology that uh, they call in the book uh, liquid biopsy, which basically says that it's technology that can diagnose cancer and other diseases from a blood test, uh, which I think is probably what they were trying to do in Bad Blood by John Carriow, which is the book that came out earlier this year, True Crime Business. Uh, Anyway, uh, it's also got history of like blood donation and kind of drives for that during the Blitz um, and a story about a guy working to provide sanitary pads in developing countries, um, the business of plasma transfusion. So it's just a really kind of like comprehensive micro history of blood. Um, and I remember this book came out. So I went, <laughs> this is kind of an embarrassing story, but that's fine. Um, I went to Barnes and Noble to buy it yesterday because I really want to read it. I love micro histories like this. Um, and I couldn't find it at first. I was looking in the wrong sections of the store. So I had to go up and ask an employee, like, can you please help me find this book? And I told her what the title was. And she like sort of gave me this like weird look and like laughed about it when I was like, 
uh, <laughs> we were going to go find it. And we went and picked it up and she sort of was like, oh, this is great. Are you a doctor or something? And instead of just being like, no, I just thought this book sounded interesting and I want it. I lied and said I was buying it for a friend because I was like so <laughs> embarrassed to be buying <laughs> this book where the cover has like, uh, like, bags of blood on it. I just, I don't know, something about it. I was like, this makes me look real weird, doesn't it? But I, so I lied to a Barnes & Noble employee so they wouldn't know I was buying it just because I want to read it. But I do. And uh, it's going to be my next read after I finish some of the stuff I'm like halfway done with. So uh, hopefully it is as excellent as it sounds like it is. Um, The book is called (laughs) Nine Pints, A Journey Through the Money, Medicine, and Mysteries of Blood by Rose George. I feel like it's perfectly fine <laughs> to want to read a book about the history of blood. Um, what sections were you looking at? I do too. Well, so first I looked in science and then I looked in uh, nature, which was right by it. And it turns out it's actually in the medicine section, which is like on the other side of oh, the store. sure. Um, but I hadn't gotten over there yet. So. Well, that sounds awesome. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I think. And I, I love a good bookstore book, quest, so I feel like that part was maybe kind of yeah. fun, aside from the whole embarrassment of asking the employee about the blood <laughs> book. Um, are you a vampire? Like, what are you? They doing? don't need to read about blood. Uh, okay, so my last pick. Yes, yes, my <laughs> last pick. I, everything is in order today. Don't worry about it. Um, is The King and the Catholics, England, Ireland, and the Fight for Religious Freedom from 1788 to 1829 by Antonia Fraser. It's out or was out September 25th. This is a little bit late from Nan A. Talese uh, Press. Antonia Fraser has written a lot of biographies and histories. Um, she wrote the really popular Marie Antoinette book. Do you remember when that came out? And then they, uh, I'm almost positive that's her. Um, so that's what they based the uh, Kirsten Dunst Marie Antoinette movie off of. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So um, mm-hmm. she's really, really prolific and really um, good at her particular subject. She's very readable. So this particular thing I was really interested in because um, the United Kingdom and Catholicism, it's just like a nutty story. You know what I mean? Which is not – I feel like that's overly <laughs> succinct considering the the many centuries that the Catholics have suffered in England. Um, but where this starts, 1780, I actually read a whole separate book about this, and it is a great story. Um, this was this year that um, mob violence swept through London and nearly uh, a thought. Well, this is, I'm sorry, I feel like the word great was wrong. I'm sorry. Nearly a thousand people were killed. Looting was widespread. Um, Torch bearing protesters marched on the prime minister's residence. So these were um, the Gordon riots, which is the worst civil disturbance in British history. What happened was um, Lord Gordon uh, basically incited this mob against um, these new laws, which were supposed to loosen two centuries of systemic oppression of Catholics in the British Isles, right? So those were started because everyone got freaked out because Mary I, um, King Henry VIII's um, first daughter, was burning Protestants. And she was like, we're all going to be Catholic. So that kind of, the English were very, very freaked out about Catholicism from the 1500s on. So this is 1780. And it's still like they have these extreme laws about how you cannot be Catholic and Catholics. And even if you were like you had, you couldn't like be in the government. Like there was all of this stuff. Wasn't it Hmm. like the last decade that they suddenly allowed the royal family to marry Catholics and like retain their, uh, Oh, I have no idea, but that seems totally It possible. was really recent. And it was just like, oh, my gosh. So I feel like um, 
so but the, anyway, the, the Gordon riots, all of these people were re- looting and rioting in the street, burning things down. They tore down um, at least two jails, like tore them down. Um, it was like and all of these people were terrified in their homes. They like went through and like burned a bunch of potential Catholics homes and were just like throwing furniture in the street. It was like uh, people were basically saying it, it seemed like hell was like there in London. So when I read the book, I'm the separate book about the Gordon riots. Um, I was just like, this sounds like the most terrifying event. And the reason that the police weren't stopping them was that at the time England was so harshly like, um, Republican in a way, because they were, they were saying that the police could not be used unless a civilian, like, m- minister from government okayed it. And none of the ministers wanted to okay it because then they thought the mob was going to tear down their houses. So then you just had the police standing by while all of this was happening. Anyway, so part of her point, other than giving this whole history from, again, like 1780 to 1829, because a lot more happens than just these initial, like, oh my gosh, riots, her whole sort of point is also making this, um, making it clear as like kind of this distant mirror of our own times. So this sort of the dire consequences of state-sanctioned intolerance and showing how uh, collective action and the political process can triumph over wrong-headed legislation. Collective action not being the like the riot in this case, but what what <laughs> happens after the riot in terms of um, sort of like peaceful action, um, and which is uh, in mm-hmm. 1829 when they had the Roman Catholic Relief Act finally passed, right? So that's 49 years from the time of these riots. But uh, it seems like a really gripping history. Again, Antonia Fraser is great. So uh, I am obviously pretty jazzed about it. But um, it is The King and the Catholics by Antonia Fraser. Interesting. Yeah, that sounds very... Very much in your wheelhouse. That sounds super <laughs> interesting. Um, all right. So uh, next we're going to uh, go to our second sponsor, which is uh, the book Democracy Hacked by Democracy ugh, Democracy Hacked by Martin Moore. There we go. In the space of one election cycle, authoritarian governments, moneyed elites, and fringe hackers figured out how to game elections, bypass the democratic process, and turn social networks into battlefields. Facebook, Google, and Twitter, where our politics now take place, have lost control and are struggling to claw it back. Prepare for a new strain of democracy, a world of datafied citizens, real-time surveillance, enforced wellness, and pre-crime, where switching your mobile platform will have more impact on your life than switching your government, where freedom and privacy are seen as incompatible with social well-being and compulsory transparency. As our lives migrate online, we have become increasingly vulnerable to, to digital platforms founded on selling your attention to the highest bidder. Our laws don't cover what is happening and our politicians don't understand it. But if we don't change the system now, we may not get another chance. Uh, so that is Democracy Hacked by Martin Moore, which sounds terrifying, but also uh, accurate. <laughs> All right. Um, so now we'll shift into our uh, weekly theme, which is not so tied to a specific event or topic as it has been for the last few weeks. Um, we thought it would be fun to talk a little bit about uh, young adult nonfiction, which is something that until we did this segment, I had really not done a lot of reading or research about. Um, Had you read a lot of YA nonfiction, Alice, or is this also kind of new to you? Uh, It's new to me, but I've found that whenever I've kind of looked at YA nonfiction, I've been like, wow, this is a a perfect amount of information for the topic uh, in terms of like how much I actually want to know. And I knew that we we had discussed in a previous episode, like, oh yeah, we should really do YA nonfiction titles. So I'm glad that we are finally doing that. Yeah, it's interesting too, because there's... um, 
some books that are like originally written as YA nonfiction, and there's a ton of YA adaptations of adult nonfiction books. Um, I think maybe those are almost more common. Um, and so I think we've chosen kind of a mix. I think mine are all original, but I'm not sure. Are your um, – so, yeah, we maybe have – I think mine are original. Yeah. Um, so that might be something to look at another time is the young adult adaptations of, of adult nonfiction because there's a lot of those too. Um, but my first one is a uh, original biography. Uh, it's called Vincent and Theo, the Van Gogh Brothers by Deborah Heigelman. Um, and this is a dual biography of Vincent Van Gogh and his brother Theo. And it's a story about their friendship and their relationship and how that relationship really influenced both of their lives. Um, Theo uh, supported Vincent while he struggled to find his path as an artist, both emotionally and financially. Um, and then as uh, Van Gogh, or Vincent Van Gogh grew as an artist, um, Theo um, kind of grew with him. Um, and so the book is based on uh, 658 letters that Vincent wrote to Theo over their lifetime. So there's a lot of direct quotes from the letters, which are really kind of fun to read. Um, and this one was super well regarded. It won a nonfiction award from YALSA, which is the Young Adult Library Services Association, um, was a uh, Prince Honor book, a um, bunch of other awards. Um, and I just absolutely adored it. Um, I like notoriously don't love giant biographies. Like I just have a really hard time with them, but I think that YA biography is really like the level I want to read at. Um, it's not so detailed that I feel like it gets really bogged down in like documenting every single day and what they were doing at every single time. But I get their their story and I got the arc of it and I got um, some characters and some people, uh, kind of a, a sense of understanding for them. And um there's also a nice helpful timeline at the back of the book. So it had key important dates. So you could always go back to look at that and kind of situate yourself in the story, which I don't know that a lot of adult biographies do, which I wish more of them did because it was very helpful. Um, and it's written in a way where like I sort of ended every chapter on a cliffhanger. So you wanted to keep going to read the next one. Um, and I really appreciated that there was a kind of an arc to their lives and their stories because I feel like it gave me something that I left the book, not just being able to say like, oh, it gave me sort of a story that I can take from the book and I can compare and, and understand and think about in context of other um, nonfiction I might read. So um, I feel like it was less about like chronicling every moment of their lives and more about telling a story about who they were and what was important to them. Um, and I really, I really, really liked it. Um, so it was uh, Vincent and Theo, The Van Gogh Brothers by Deborah Heigelman. Um, that seems really good. And I like what you were saying about kind of giving you the amount of information, right? Or like going at least in, as in-depth mm -hmm. as you really want to because I feel like a lot of times I feel like as an adult, I need to just read these like very ponderous, occasionally nonfiction books when really sometimes what I need is like, you know, those discovery like Atlas books, not even Atlas, but like they have like a lot of images from things like you, they have like, it's <laughs> yeah. like the Celts and then they'll have like all of these pictures of like Celtic pottery and like all this stuff. And I'm just like, yeah, that's actually kind of what I want. <laughs> like I just want to yeah. look at like images of the stuff you found of these people. I don't really need to read like a history of what we know, which is not a lot, I don't think. But um, and that could be very wrong. No Celtic scholars write me. Uh, but anyway, um, so that's awesome. And I do not know that much about Van Gogh. And I know that this book was very lauded. So uh, thank you for picking it. Um, my pick is hashtag not your princess. 
Voices of Native American Women, which is edited by Mary Beth Leatherdale and Lisa Charlie Boy and published by Anik Press. And they have a very lovely and sort of um, not quite poetic, but nice summary. So I'm just going to, the editors present a stereotype busting zine-like collection of personal essays, illustrations, and photos from and about the marginalized experiences of indigenous young women. This energetic showcase of contemporary lives demonstrates the strength and vitality of living heritage through a rich, visually stunning riot of art and memoir. I really liked visually stunning riot. I thought that was mm-hmm. great. Um, that is good. Well done, Anik Press. So I was looking through this and um, it is like this. So you have uh, just these really beautiful pictures and then you have poems and then some just sort of like remembrances written in and it's very, very sort of, it is zine-like, you know, in terms of this sort of not rough, but like motley mm-hmm. collection. Um and I'm always very excited when I see something about indigenous voices because um, there, there's not an, enough of that, frankly, especially considering uh, we are in that land. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, uh, that is hashtag not your princess, all one word, of course, because that's how hashtags work. Voices of Native American women. Excellent. I'm curious, did you find that like at your library or at a bookstore? Like, How did you come across it? Um, I was looking for some kind of like highly recommended YA nonfiction. I think it was on a Goodreads list. And then I just sort of like went from there in terms of like, you know, flipping through it and and checking it out. Um, But it was really well reviewed, which uh, I feel like that kind of thing, like there could have, I don't know, what if someone was being like, like exploiting the whole topic, but uh, no, seems like no. Um, But again, I just, I get really excited also when it's, um, own voices mm-hmm. because uh, that seems like even rare. I think there are a lot of, especially when I've, I've looked before for kind of stories of um, Native American things, and a lot of them seem to be written by like white women for some reason. Have you noticed that at all? I guess I haven't looked, but I wouldn't be surprised by that for sure. Yeah, it's uh, it's a little bit frustrating. And maybe I'm making assumptions um, based on names and photos. I guess I am. But uh, that's it really seems like that. And it's great that they're getting published. But also, uh, I would obviously prefer that people tell their own stories. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited that it is a thing. Good yeah. job, YA nonfiction. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons I asked was because I also, when I was trying to kind of find some books and sort through some things, I went to a bunch of like lists of best books and stuff like that. And then I went to go find them and I wanted to just do some browsing to kind of see what I might come across naturally. Um, one of the libraries I regularly go to has, they don't have their YA nonfiction separated out from their adult nonfiction. So it's just kind of mixed in there. So you wouldn't really you wouldn't really be able to just browse and find it, which so I didn't. So I put a couple on hold and then went and picked them up. But another library that I like to go to actually had a separate YA nonfiction section. And that was super interesting to just kind of walk down. The, it was one aisle, um, so it wasn't a ton. Um, but it was really interesting to walk down that and just kind of pull some stuff off the shelves and see what I could find. Because um, I think serendipity is kind of one of the fun things about being a reader. But um, if a, if types of books aren't pulled out in a way that you can actually find them that um you know, that's hard. So that's kind of why I was curious how you had, had come across it. Um, yeah. So uh, my second book is another uh, biography, but this one is actually a biography that is both illustrated and told in verse, um, which is super interesting and a good like kind of reader stretch for me. And um, the book is called Mary's Monster, Love, Madness, and How Mary Shelley Created Frankenstein by Lita Judge. Uh, and this like I, I found it and then I immediately like brought it home to read it because it like 
checks off a bunch of boxes for me, which is I love books with uh, madness in the subtitle. That is, I will read almost anything. Um, And Frankenstein is one of my very favorite books. It is such a weird, demented novel, but I just adore how strange it is. And so I kind of always love to read things about Frankenstein. Um, so yeah, so like I said, Mary's Monster is an illustrated biography that's also told in verse about uh, Mary Shelley and then her, the experiences in her life that sort of helped contribute to her writing of Frankenstein. Um, and I, the illustrations are so interesting and cool. They're very, they're all like, they're black and white and they're kind of sketchy. So they just look very ominous, um, and kind of dark in the background, which makes sense because this whole period of her life from when she was a teenage girl through, um, the publication of Frankenstein and about five years afterwards is a really dark, sad, scary time, um, despite her kind of amazing um, output as a fiction writer. But um, the prose and the verse is really clear and evocative. Um, It was kind of told in uh, first person, so you could kind of get a sense of her experience and her voice. But I thought the book was also really obviously well-sourced. She had a great list of sources in the back that she was um, attributing pieces of the verses to, and then um, had some good um, intro and concluding text, kind of giving some context to Mary Shelley's life and her family and her experiences after the publication of Frankenstein that I thought were good um, bookends, I guess, to this kind of more more imaginative nonfiction piece, although still, I think, very accurate to um, the the facts of her biography. Um, and then, yeah, a good list of citations at the end. So this is one where I finished it and I thought, boy, I really want to go read like a, a big chunky Mary Shelley biography, although of course I will probably never read a chunky Mary Shelley biography because it's just not my thing. But um, someday maybe I will because she's a fascinating woman for sure. Um, So the book is Mary's Monster, Love Madness, and How Mary Shelley Created Frankenstein by Lita Judge. And you said you had this one on your pile too, I think, right? Yeah, I love this book. It's like you said, the illustrations are so evocative and interesting. And even though it's just, you know, like kind of like you said, it's like verse and illustrations, you're kind of like, oh, this is a little different from what I normally read. Um, And at first it feels younger, but it's such like an immersive, like immediately kind of experience uh, and telling, yeah, this extremely overall depressing life of so dark. And I forgot, I forgot about your Frankenstein love, which always delights me. Because I feel like I don't expect it. And then it's like, oh, yeah, I super love Frankenstein. I'm like, Kim, that's great. It's so it's such a weird book. And I just I just love it so much. That's awesome. But yeah, no, I, I second your your recommendation for Mary's Monster. Um, my last YA nonfiction pick is Being Jazz, My Life as a Transgender Teen by Jazz Jennings. Um, So at the age of five, Jazz transitioned to life as a girl with the support of her parents. Uh, A year later, her parents allowed her to share this journey in her first Barbara Walters interview, um, which was aired at a time when uh, transgenderism, I assume, but uh, was much less sort of like in the news. Um, We did not know that much about it. And so this was an especially kind of, you know, big deal, especially for such a young person um, to be in that kind of spotlight. Uh, so this groundbreaking interview was followed by, um, other high profile interviews, a documentary, the launch of her YouTube channel, uh, which I definitely remember 
going to a lot uh, a couple years ago, maybe many years ago. All of the time is just sort of running past Kim. Um, And her own reality TV series, I Am Jazz. So making her one of the most recognizable activists for transgender teens, children, and adults. So in this book, Being Jazz, uh, Jazz reflects on these very public experiences, how they have helped shape the mainstream attitude toward the transgender community, as well as the challenges, bullying, discrimination, and rejection she has faced as she educates others about her life as a transgender teen. Um, I don't really want to address what has been going on in the news, but uh, it is a load of crap. So um, I <laughs> wanted to especially highlight this. And I think Jazz is a very inspiring person. Uh, she has done it, obviously a ton of work um, on behalf of transgender activism and uh, has therefore, I'm sure, like sacrificed a lot in her life in order to keep talking about this issue. Um, I cannot imagine what she has gone through, but she – like almost every photo of her that I've seen is her like smiling, this giant smile. And she's just such mm-hmm. an infectious – Um, interesting person. So again, that is Being Jazz, My Life as a Transgender Teen by Jazz Jennings. I'm really glad you mentioned that one. Yeah, I think that's a great pick. Um, And I just have one more one to talk about real quick because one of the other, um, I guess maybe trends that I saw when I was looking up different types of YA nonfiction and what I might want to read and try and talk about was that there are a lot of really great essay collections um, for young adult readers out coming out now. Um, Book Riot's own Kelly Jensen has written two of them, um, one about feminism and one about mental health. Um, And it just seems like there's a ton of them out there. And so I wanted to start reading one and just see what it was all about. Uh, And so the one I picked and I'm about halfway through reading is called Our Stories, Our Voices. 21 YA authors get real about injustice, empowerment, and growing up female in America. Um, And it's it's so good and interesting so far. And I think um, I'm I'm getting a lot out of it, even as an adult reader. But I think if I had come across this book um, as a teenager, I would have really found a lot in it to... um, to help inspire me against some of the things as a teenager that I was really like struggling with and unhappy with. Um, so the, like the subtitle says there are 21 YA authors writing about life in America today. Um, and one of the, I think, recurring themes in it is that uh, the importance of representation and about seeing ourselves in our stories and our communities and in kind of political discourse. And so a lot of these essays are women um, writing about their own experiences and trying to um, talk about their experiences as teenagers in a way that other teenagers who are like them could understand and see and how much they struggled with some of those things. Um, and there's it's a super uh, diverse collection. There's writing about a lot of different stuff. Some of it is a lot heavier than others. Some of them are, they're all serious, but I think some of them are heavier than others. Um, and so it's a good way. Like so far the collection feels really balanced and it'll kind of jump between topics and um, different voices and stuff, which is really great. Um, and it reminds me of like an adult uh, essay collection that I have had on my pile and just haven't <laughs> gotten around to reading yet, uh, which is called Nasty Women, Feminism, Resistance, and Revolution in Trump's America. Um, and I think this is kind of the same, I think it's got the same um, kind of political impetus behind it, just coming to, to different audiences from different types of writers. So um, there's a lot of really good feminist essay collections right now, but this is a YA version that I am enjoying very much. Uh, it's called Our Stories, Our Voices, 21 YA Authors Get Real About Injustice, Empowerment, and Growing Up Female in America. There have been a lot of essay collections and kind of like the YA 
um, yeah. sphere. That's right. And you just reminded me I want to read Nasty Women, which uh, which I know is the the adult pick. But um, Nicole Chung contributed to that too, just to go back to our <laughs> new release. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Everyone's everywhere. Ladies. Ladies, so great. All right. So um, our Sad, blah, third segment this week. Um, we <laughs> we went back and forth on different ideas, but we decided we settled on current events reads because uh, there's a lot of stuff happening in the news right now, and everything's kind of crazy. Um, so I have I actually have two. One that is a little more lighthearted than the other. Um, so we will start with the lighthearted version. Um, one of the lighthearted things in the news that I am extremely obsessed with is our R. Megan and Harry's uh, royal visit to Australia and Fiji. Um, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. Uh, they are there, and I am obsessed with all of their uh, fashion, all of the fashion coverage and all of the like cool stuff they get to do, and just sort of watching them and being like, man, I wish that I could be a princess traveling in New Zealand right now. That would be, or Australia and Fiji and whatever. Real bad. I really want to do that. So, so anyway, uh, the book that I uh, read this weekend when I was feeling sad that I was not a princess uh, is called American Princess, The Love Story of Meghan Markle and Prince Harry by Leslie Carroll. Uh, and this is a book that came out in April 2018. So I think very relatively quickly uh, after they were engaged and right before they were married in May. Um and it is definitely not highbrow nonfiction, uh, which is not to say that it is bad or badly written. It is just sort of um, light and gossipy, and there are like no sources listed at the back at all, um, like literally none. So <laughs> I don't know what that says necessarily about the uh, the research rigor of it exactly, but um, I also really enjoyed reading it, and I read it over like often on over one day. So it's not a particularly uh, taxing read either. Um, but the part that I, I liked about it that I think makes it not just be sort of floofy is that she really gives some good context about the history of the royal family and how marriages um, have worked in the past and why Meghan Markle, who is a divorced American biracial actress, how her wedding into the monarchy is such a revolutionary kind of thing and how big of a leap it is for that institution to have this even happen. Um, because even last century, like stuff like that just would never have, never have been possible. Um, so I, I liked that she gave some context for that. Um, I thought that part was interesting. So I think it's an interesting book if that's a thing that, uh, seems interesting to you. Just seems sort of interesting, like 10 times. <laughs> Cheese. You're doing a great That's job. Professional wordsmith. Um, but yeah, so I, I liked it. And I think it's one that's not going to like have a lot of shelf life though. So if you're interested in reading this one, I would pick it up sooner rather than later because I think it's going to feel really dated really fast. Um, but yeah, kind of a, a fun, lighthearted read. Uh, American Princess, The Love Story of Meghan Markle and Prince Harry by Leslie Carroll. Um, and then I'm just going to do my second one real quick because it is less lighthearted and I just thought of it while you were talking about the Jazz Jennings book. Um, and given all of the news about the Trump administration and their attempts to write transgender people out of the law, I don't even, ugh, so ridiculous. Um, another memoir by a transgender person that I think is excellent and absolutely worth reading is called Tomorrow Will Be Different by Sarah McBride, um, which I think I talked about on the podcast before, maybe during new books, because it's new 
this year. Um, but she is a young woman in Delaware who's a transgender activist and has worked um, with a bunch of uh, civil rights and LGBTQ rights organizations in Delaware and Washington. Um, and the book is just a really solid thoughtful, lovely memoir about her life and her um, relationship with her husband who passed away from cancer and um, what she has been doing as an activist and as a representative of the transgender community. And it's a really, really, really good memoir. So um, if that is something you want to learn more about or want to read more about, uh, Tomorrow Will Be Different by Sarah McBride is absolutely a good one to pick up too. Thanks for that um, addition. So we have a a YA and an adult nonfiction pick for that. Um, Mm -hmm. I I would like to circle back real quick on the Meghan Markle, Prince Harry situation, uh, which is another one of my favorite sort of Kim interests that we, uh, which is like the the (laughs) British royalty. I'm always delighted when when you pick one of those. Um, Do you, this is somewhat a a much broader question, so feel free to say I have no idea. Do you think mm-hmm. that the English monarchy will last past Queen Elizabeth II's reign? Ooh, that's a good question. You know, I think it sort of depends if Charles becomes the king or if he lets it go to William. Because I do not think Charles is particularly popular. And I think that there's a lot of... There's a lot of just like dislike about him. And this, this book talks a little bit about that and how like his relationship with Diana and then his affairs and all of that, like what that meant and that Camilla is married into the royal family, like how that helped pave the way for Megan potentially to do that too. Although like Megan's joining is certainly less scandalous in terms of um, people's extramarital behavior, I guess. <laughs> um But yeah, I think he's still not particularly popular, but his sons and their wives really are. And the little royals are really quite popular too. So um, I think depending on how they behave after Queen Elizabeth is gone, we'll kind of determine what happens next. Interesting. Well, we'll all find out probably relatively soon, unless she like does something amazing and lives to like 110, which that would be amazing, wouldn't it? I would not put that past her. Um, Nope. Okay, so my pick, uh, I wanted to do that because mine is very serious, um, is Undocumented Lives, the untold story of Mexican migration by Ana Raquel Minion. Uh, it came out March 2018, so it's pretty recent. Um, this is, of course, a current event because of the caravan, uh, quote unquote, coming up through Mexico to the border. Um, as of the recording of this podcast, we don't know what's going to happen with it um, and how the government is going to actually respond. So Undocumented Lives tells the story of Mexicans who have been used and abused by the broader economic and political policies of Mexico and the United States. So this is saying that in the 1970s, the Mexican government acted to alleviate rural unemployment by supporting the migration of able-bodied men. So migration overall, of course, to the United States. Um, Millions crossed into the U.S. to find work that would help them survive as well as sustain their families in Mexico. So they took low-level positions that few Americans wanted and sent money back to communities that depended on their support. But as U.S. authorities pursued more aggressive anti-immigrant measures, migrants found themselves caught between the economic interests of competing governments. Uh, so basically, the um, the quote unquote fruits of their labors, as uh, the synopsis describes, were needed in both places, and but neither country made them feel welcome, right? Because Mexico is like go and earn money elsewhere, send it back. The U.S. is like 
we need your labor, but also we don't want you here. Like it's this weird double speak happening. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. Ana Raquel Minion explores this um, sort of chapter in the history of Mexican migration by drawing on private letters, songs, oral testimony to recreate the experience of circular migration, which has reshaped communities, of course, in the United States and Mexico. Um, and talking about, right, so um, migrants can uh, earn for themselves and their families in the U.S., but they also sort of needed to return to Mexico to reconnect with their homes periodically, which um, I've even had that sort of told anecdotally to me, like uh, from people I know. So this is this all sounds, it sounds very familiar as a story, and it's, of course, happening throughout the United States and is also being weirdly vilified. So, um mm-hmm. Obviously, in the mid-1980s, starting the U.S. immigration crackdown began, essentially, and then now it's been continuing and and growing, certainly. Even, like, of course, during the last administration, that was happening at a a huge rate. So if you would like to learn more about this, um, this affects all of us in some way. Um, This is Undocumented Lives, The Untold Story of Mexican Migration by Ana Raquel Minion. Excellent. That is a really, that was a really good pick. I think that's a, I did not know that. Yeah, I didn't know that kind of side of the history of immigration. I, I mean, there's lots I don't know about immigration. So I'm sure that's just one little piece of it. Um, well, we don't really awesome. hear about Mexico's side of it, right? Where it's like, it's no. no. <laughs> so anyway, sorry. Carry on. Yeah, Last no, section. Um, yeah, so we will conclude the podcast as we usually do with what we are reading right now. Um, so I'm actually in the middle of a bunch of books that I mentioned in the podcast that I'm all hoping to finish. But the one that I might pick up next, I'm not sure, uh, is one that was um, – well, so the title of the book is How Democracies Die by Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Zinblatt. Um, and I checked this one out from the library because um, – Former President Barack Obama had it. He posted about it on his Facebook page as one of a a few books that he was recommending um, for people to read who are trying to kind of understand the current political climate and situation and how we got where we are today. And so this is a book um, about looking at the question, like, is our democracy in danger? And so these two men, they're Harvard professors, have spent more than 20 years studying the breakdown of democracies in Europe and Latin America. Um, And so they look at some of those historical trends, like what happens when democracy sort of fizzles out based because of the weakening of institutions and the erosion of political norms. and whether we are currently in a path in which that is possible in the United States. Um, So this seems like it could be extremely depressing, but I was skimming through it this afternoon, um, and the writing looks like it's very clear, very straightforward. It's not going to be too... um, too dense, which is something I was a little worried about when I first checked it out. But um, I think if I get to read it, I'm I'm looking forward to it is not exactly the word that I want, but I'm interested to read it. So uh, the book is How Democracies Die by Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Zinblatt. Uh, Gosh, we've got like a lot of sort of political books in this particular (laughs) episode. We should just call it the political episode. We're queuing up to we're queuing up to the election. I feel like it's kind of in everybody's mind. Uh, which vote, if you are hearing this before you can vote, please do. Oh, yeah. Vote, everyone. Um, everyone vote. My, uh, which uh, kind of ties in with my current read. So, oh, yeah. which don't tell my church book club that I'm still reading it because I was technically <laughs> technically supposed to have finished it on Tuesday. Um, so this is The Evangelicals by Francis Fitzgerald, which is an over 700-page history of the evangelical movement in the United States. 
I know. Uh, my my very very liberal church uh, likes to read histories of other religions and denominations and all of this. Um, and we have been going as a book group for about eight years. And someone finally was like, "Let's read this giant evangelical book." So um, I've read about half of it. It definitely gets very very in the weeds about the history of the evangelical movement. So if you're interested in the difference between Pentecostals and Charismatics and uh, evangelicals and how they kind of all the heads of their various movements and all of this i would say it gets really interesting like i kind of was finally really keyed in around um the time of jerry falwell so if you're actually interested in learning about the movement and how it is currently affecting us i think starting with even not reading this book but like starting with kind of him and then moving on with actually actually no i take that back billy graham in the 1950s and then Jerry Falwell mm-hmm. and you're kind of all of these other sort of like Baptist, et cetera, preachers. Um, and it gets into the televangelists, which I find fascinating. Uh, so like Oral Roberts and um, Jimmy, J- not Jimmy, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker um, and their whole, oh. did you know they built like this thing that was like Disneyland, but it was like Christian Disneyland. No, it- but I am also not surprised to hear that. <laughs> It was called Heritage USA and it had like a giant fiberglass moose. Like there was a lot of stuff that I didn't understand. <laughs> but anyway, um, it's really interesting from from about, I don't know what page number, maybe like 200 or 300 pages in um, of this giant Oh book. my God. Yeah, I know. But again, during the discussion, I was mostly just able to focus in on the televangelists, which I, of course, mm-hmm. had already read about. And I was, so I sounded like I knew what I was talking about, which was the important <laughs> thing, but but yes, don't tell them I haven't finished. <laughs> yeah. Oh, funny. That's very intense. Uh, I'm impressed that you are. I'm impressed that you're going to finish that. That is a, a worthwhile and large investment of time and energy, for sure. Uh, and so, with that, we have reached the end of this week's podcast. Oh, yes, we have. So if you have any questions, comments, etc., you can find us on social media on Twitter. I am at It's Alice Time and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Uh, And if you are so inclined, uh, you can rate and review the show on iTunes, which helps people find us more easily. And while you're there, you are iTunes or the podcasting app of your choice. Uh, And while you're there, you can subscribe. So you'll get new episodes uh, the very minute they come out. And so with that, I am Kim Ugra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast.